corruption between the duopoly of the Republicans and the Democrats, uh, not listening to the will of the people, um, literally stepping on them to put forward zombie candidates like Biden and Kamala Harris, where Bernie Sanders had the will of the people. These are opportunities right there that, that we can't overcome because the system itself is set up to prevent real direct democracy, to prevent people from actually having a real voice. And so what ends up happening is, is that people feel uh, cynical. Hi, everyone. Before we start, I want to take a minute to talk about my next book. You may have heard about the story of GameStop in January or February and thought it was all over. You're sadly mistaken. Unfolding Online has been a clash between the corrupt practices of Wall Street and the hive mind of the internet. It's a hot, raging information war pitting retail investors against financial giants swimming in corruption and fraud. The trailer is at the end of this podcast, but if you want to help crowdfund the book or just find out more, you can sign up to my mailing list to get access to a preview of chapter one or go to whenmoon.com to read more about the book. The first 200 people to pre-order the book will get a free pack of To The Moon crayons with their book. I just want to make a quick mention of our sponsors. Namecheap are one of the cheapest places on the internet to get a domain name for your next website. I've used Namecheap for all the sites I've ever purchased and I find it really easy to use. Spreaker are a rapidly growing platform for podcast recording, publishing and monetization with pricing plans as low as $7 per month. A cheap way to host your podcast and start earning from your back catalogue of shows. Finally, ExpressVPN is the internet's most trusted VPN. Protect your privacy and watch and view content that is location locked. You can even try watching Netflix from a different country. And right now, they're offering 35% off 12 months of ExpressVPN. Please use the links in the description below if you want to support the show. Anyway. Here's the podcast. So hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Steve Grumbine, um, the founder and CEO, uh, CEO of Real Progressives, of Real Progress in Action, and host of the podcast Macro and Cheese and new podcast, uh, The New Untouchable. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me on, man. Yeah, not a problem. I mean, I, I came across your, your site and, and, um, as we were talking about before, I was, I was intrigued by your story of going from, a George Bush, uh, senior Republican to being, um, like a progressive independent left winger. I don't know exactly how you want to class it. <laughs> um, it's, it's an interesting journey, um, for sure, man. So, uh, before we get started, why, why don't you give like a little bit of background on, on yourself and, and whatnot so people know who you are? Sure. So, um, you know, I, I'm a lifelong right-wing guy who had uh, been raised in a right-wing household and uh, didn't know any better, didn't do any better, lived in a kind of an echo bubble. Um, and then life came at me hard and I started learning some things and all those right-wing things started drifting away and falling away because I started seeing the world through a macroeconomic lens I had lost everything in the global financial crisis, lost a family, lost a career, and couldn't make heads or tails of it. Um, so, you know, I, I was introduced to modern monetary theory, 
uh, back in 2008, 2009, right when the collapse was really at its worst. And uh, I haven't looked back. It's It's been a journey, an economic journey more than anything. Um, and so I would classify myself as a um, an MMT-informed independent progressive, um, a leftist for sure, but um, not just a not the bleeding heart liberal, more so a functional, I understand how this works. And so it makes sense to me now, if that makes, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So um, for people who don't know what um, MMT, modern monetary theory is, why don't you give like your understanding of it for them? Sure. So MMT is just an understanding of macroeconomics. It's basically a lens by which to understand the way a sovereign free-floating fiat currency works. Um, and it describes currency in general. A lot of people will call it currency analysis. Um, but MMT is really an extension of state theory of money, uh, CANAP. Um, it's also a, an extension of a lot of Abba Lerner and Hyman Minsky and, you know, Michael Kaleski um, and, and a bunch of other things post-Keynesianism. Um, it's got pieces of all of that. Um, but what it really does is it describes the way a sovereign currency issuing nation such as the UK or the United States or even, you know, Japan, Australia, how they actually functionally work. Um, in terms of their spending, how, how it operates and where money starts from. And it, it starts from the government. The government is the monopoly issuer of the currency. It has chartered banks um, for its own purposes. And all the rules and laws that go around the currency, in the case of my country, the United States, the U.S. dollar, um, it spoke those into existence and it has control of that. It can set the value to a partridge in a pear tree, or it could set it to anything else that it wants to. Um, and so it's basically, it explains that the unit of account, which is the dollar, is nothing more than an inch or a pound. And it really equates to what we will call a tax credit. In other words, the government spends the money first, and then it taxes a little bit of it back as a lure to keep you needing that currency. And that's how it maintains its value, not by some commodity backed, uh, you know, like gold standard or anything like that. It really is the tax that drives the currency because you must pay your taxes in that currency. You can't pay it in Bitcoin, can't pay it in Ethereum or Doji. You have to pay it only in the country's unit of account. So, you know, MMT goes back forever. It's not very modern. Um, it is a theoretical framework, but it's not a lot of theory. It's like an operations manual, like a like a plumbing book that explains the rules that go around currency and how it gets brought into the universe. And I, I think one of the most important things is if you go way back to the time of the monarchs, the functional monarchs, not the celebrity monarchs, um, and in a time where they would speak this stuff into existence, that was the sovereign right of kings to speak this currency into existence. And so what they would do is they would say, hey, I want to build an aqueduct. I want to build a castle. I want to build a standing army or whatever. And they're like, well, okay, so, you know, I don't really feel like doing it. I'm kind of enjoying fishing off my back pier and, you know, harvesting these potatoes, whatever it is that I'm doing. And the king's like, well, you know, you got a good point. How about if I give you this, this token, will you, will you come work for me for this token? Guy says, nah, I don't think I'm going to come work for you for that token. He goes, how about 
if I make it so that you can keep your house, if you give me 10 of those tokens, will you come work for me? Well, shoot. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do it now. Now I'll do it. So there's a bit of a coercive pressure um, to use the currency because of that tax. And the tax is not there to fund operations. It's there to retain the magnet that keeps the circuit flowing. And so that's in essence, you know, lower taxes, you know, higher buying power, you know, higher taxes, it's harder to get, you know, stronger dollar, things like that. So it's a gas pedal and a brake for an economy. And that's the essence. And there's a lot more to it than that. But for someone just hearing about MMT for the first time, that's the essence of it. Okay, that's that's a different explanation than I've heard from other people, at least anyway, or a, a different um, way or attempt to explain it. So you're essentially saying that, no, this is great, because I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around whether, because people have talked about it being, that's what we're seeing this year with all the printing of money. Um, and I'm not sure that that's the case in the way that I have previously understood it. But sure. uh, let me just let me just like clarify what you've just said. So I've got it in my head here. So you're saying that essentially it's this this theory describes the the idea that money is created by the sovereign, whether that was the kings of old or the, the U.S. government or the Federal Reserve now, and then given out to the people, and then then it is tax that brings that money back to the government and in order to like recycle it essentially. It's functionally deleted. Okay. Functionally right. deleted. Yes. Um. You know, there's no um. There's absolutely no reuse of dollars. Once the government, government neither has nor doesn't have dollars. It creates dollars. It, well, it's an inch. It's a, it's a unit of measure. It's like, where do the runs in a baseball game come from? You know what I mean? And so when the government signs a law, especially in the United States, let me just speak about what I know definitively. When Congress passes a law, it issues, you know, it goes through whatever reconciliation and sends that bill through for the president's signature. It then goes through to the Federal Reserve, who then debits or credits the accounts at the Treasury, and the Treasury then spends that money into existence. The Federal Reserve in the United States is the Board of Governors is a part of the government, so a lot of people get this stuff all twisted and whatever, but the Board of Governors is, in fact, an agency of the U.S. federal government. And then the banks, the other banks, are, are like an ingress and an egress into the economy. Um, so if you think of it more like they handle clearing payments between entities, that's largely what the central bank's job is to do, is to maintain uh, price stability and full employment. That's at least that's what they say on paper anyway. Um, so, you know, ultimately, the when you talk about printing money, we don't, we don't really print money anymore. That's not really how it works. It's really keystrokes, you know, when you spend you know, it creates deposits, right? Loans create deposits, but so does the Federal Reserve. They enter, they mark accounts up, they mark them down. And, and that's really the essence of money creation. And so it comes back to who has that power. And in the United States, Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution clearly states that Congress has the power of the purse. And so the banks are just agents of the United States government. They all have charters. And they are all given charters by decree from the federal government. And they're regulated and all the rules that are there are regulated to, you know, by the government. However, as we see capture, we recognize that most of these banks have been deregulated and they've been allowed to run afoul and run amok. And so I think that the, the deregulation of banks and other banking-like uh, institutions has given rise to a lot of the misunderstandings about money 
um, and understanding, you know, like a bank can give you a loan, but it's giving you a debt denominated in the government's unit of account. At the end of the day, when they you pay that loan back, it zeroes out, but they keep the interest. That interest is money that was already in the economy. And so, you know, ultimately banks don't create money in the sense that they can just create net financial assets because a net financial asset, you never have to pay back. But a, a bank loan, they have to pay it back too. They're, those reserves that they have in the back that support that have to be paid back. So there's a there's a kind of like a dark crystal moment there. The light and the dark come together and they go away. It, you know, once a dollar comes back as a tax, it's it's done its job. It's no longer It'll never be respent. So you could say the velocity of a government spent dollar is one. It's spent one time. And when it comes back, it's done. So every dollar is a new dollar. Ah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Every dollar is a new dollar. Because my my understanding of, of modern monetary theory previously had been that essentially it was this rule that said, or this theory that said that government debt is the, the level of government debt is essentially irrelevant and we can print or well digitally enter as much money as, as, uh, as we, as we like, uh, so long as the economy is running essentially and that we're creating things with the, the money that we're creating. So and let's talk about that real quick. What do you just, just for grins, what do you think? a government's debt is like, for example, the United States government, let's use that. Cause that's the big one. The, the, I think it's like 29 trillion in debt or something like that. I, it goes up and down, whatever, but let's say it's 29 trillion. That number, what do you think that number represents? I mean, as far as I'm aware, that's the, the amount of money that is out in the system or that has been created and put out into the system, but not returned to it. Is that like a reasonable? That's exactly it. Yeah. That's all it is. All the, it never has to be paid back. Right. It, 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 but remember I told you a dollar is a tax credit. So what that means is the government agrees that at any given time, it will take $1 in return for $1 of tax liability. It's always going to be a one for one. There's no inflation on the tax. It's always one for one. So when you think about what the national debt is, it's the sum total of every untaxed dollar that's in the real economy floating around. And so why is the national debt a big deal? Because people are going back to a time where Milton Friedman polluted everyone's mind. The monetarists polluted everyone's mind to believe this idea of quantity theory of money that, oh my God, they're printing money. We're going to have inflation. And that, that line of thinking doesn't pass muster because what you're talking about really is in essence, if you and I all both want a PlayStation five and they only made one PlayStation five. And so you and I are in a bidding war because we want that one PlayStation five. And let's say they, you know, it was $500 list price, but all of a sudden in order to get it, they bid it up to 1200, like happened during the COVID response, you know, COVID crisis. So this right here is a relative value story where they had a limited supply. The supply chain didn't meet demand. And so now you've got a bidding war. That's a different story. When we're talking about real inflation, we're talking about the general rise in all prices and sustained rise in all prices. So you look at something like the Saudis right now playing games with the oil prices, right? And oil production. And the more they limit production, the higher that price goes up. Well, everything 
in our entire everything. <laughs> I mean, from lubricants to plastics to glass to you name it, everything is made with petroleum products right now. And so if the rise in that price goes up, it's going to cascade across every other thing in the economy. So this could bring about a general rise in all prices, right? Without having shortages of anything else, just that one thing. But usually most things don't don't have that kind of an impact. Um, and so it's really not a matter of how much money is in the economy. It really comes down to, do we have the real resources for sale that meet the uh, pent-up demand for people who had otherwise been trapped in austerity who didn't have money, now all of a sudden you give them $500 more than they had before. Now what are they going to do with that money? Most people that have been hurting are probably going to get a tooth filled at the dentist. In the U.S., we don't have free dental care. We, we all, we're screwed, right? And so in, in a case of this, you, know, you would look at people spending their money on things immediately. But as you go further up the food chain, people that get more money, they tend to save it. They tend to invest it in some sort of a financialized, you know, gamble or something like that. They're not necessarily spending it on loaves of bread and buying more electricity. So they're not in any way, shape or form really bidding out anything. However, they could buy up a bunch of houses like they are doing in the United States with BlackRock and start gouging. Price gouging can create that too. But that's not an issue of money creation. That's not a function of printing money. That's a function of a deleterious business practice that should be regulated out of existence. Hmm. Now, you kind of mentioned inflation there, and this is something that people have been obviously very concerned about, um, or a certain portion of the, the population have been concerned about with, yeah, just what's happening with all the extra money flowing around in the system. And the argument is that um, we're going to inflate the value of the dollar or sorry inflate the yeah the dollar is going to experience inflation you're going to need more dollars to pay for everything and eventually this is going to lead to like massive price increases um you, you're shaking your head you like you, you don't agree so now so a lot of this <laughs> stuff is based on commodity money right thinking about gold backed money so if i have a pool of gold this big and i print money print money against that gold Let's pretend like this is a pizza pie and we got eight slices. Well, all of a sudden it's like, hey, we need 16 slices. So now you slice it. Now your value of that gold, if you're taking a slice of pizza, has been diminished. You've debased your currency in that sense, right? We have a sovereign free-floating currency. It doesn't have the same constriction that a commodity-backed currency does. So the government is the price setter once you're in this fiat world. When the government spends that money into existence, typically it's spending it on big things like here's a billion dollars to build a damn plane or a bomb or something like that. Or maybe it's for a program or any number of things, but they're setting the price once they spend that money into existence. And then like any good drug dealer, you know, they, they get the pure stuff at the top, they cut it up and now all of a sudden they send it out in the next level and then they step on it again and they cut it out and they send it out the next level. That's kind of how this thing works, unfortunately. So if you spend at the top, the trickle down, you're only going to get the stuff that is like, it's been cut too many times. You, you know what I mean? If you spend at the bottom, now all of a sudden people have choices and that value is, is at, a, at a, a premium because those upper businesses have to compete for that money. Just a little different perspective there. But in, in fairness, 
inflation is not a result of money floating around. It, it really is a result of a, a distributional um, ability to exact demand and there not being enough product to meet demand. So it's a supply and demand issue. And any good business that wants to keep making money is going to produce enough goods and services to meet demand. They're going to see that as an opportunity to grow their business. And they're going to hire more people to meet that demand and so on and so on and so on. So it's, it's not an inflationary thing. Typically, when you hear people talk about that hyperinflation and things like that, once again, you can hit the big three. Go to Weimar, Germany. You're now talking about a situation where you had debt denominated in a foreign currency, French francs. The, the French were smart. They always say, ah, no, you're not going to pay us in Reichsmarks. Pay us in French <laughs> francs. Okay. And so the German uh, industrial sector also, as a result of the, the horrible austerity that was imposed by the Treaty of Versailles, um, they went ahead and went on strike. So now you have a production issue on top of foreign debt issue. So you've got two big whammies going against the German people at that point. And so ultimately, you could have brought a wheelbarrow of money to buy a loaf of bread. It had nothing to do with printing money. Once again, it was a spiraling need to eat. People wanted food. And, and ultimately, the production wasn't there. They didn't have the flour. They didn't have the real goods and services that the people needed, desperately needed. They had lost their food sovereignty in many ways. And so they were dependent on imports that they didn't have any standing to purchase. So ultimately, Germany was a resource constraint, a foreign debt constraint, not a printing money constraint. You go down to Zimbabwe. We have a very, very similar thing where Mugabe had taken away the farmland from the colonizers. Good for him, right? Gives it to the indigenous folks. Well, the problem is twofold. Number one, the colonizers set the crops on fire as they walked away from the land. And number two, the people that were taking over didn't have the skills to farm that land. So production of food, their food sovereignty went from 100% sovereignty down to 40%. And so now all of a sudden people are starving and they need food. And you could have printed a billion, trillion, zillion dollar bill in Zimbabwean money, but you didn't have any standing because you had no food production. So you were dependent on imports once again. And so this is what you see a lot in colonized Africa, even to this day, they're not food sovereign. They don't have a lot of sovereignty in any of it from energy production, you name it. And so what ends up happening, you end up with these hyperinflation scenarios. Then, you know, one of the other favorite ones, you go down to Argentina, right? And so we hear the Argentina story. Well, guess what happens in Venezuela? Let's do Venezuela instead. You know, Venezuela, you got crude, right? This is their product is crude. Well, what happens when the Saudis screw with the crude price, right? Now, all of a sudden, there's a death spiral. They're dependent. All their debt is based on their crude production. But when the prices drop down, their debt's still here, but their ability to produce enough oil to meet that debt is way down here. So all of a sudden now, you've got a horrible situation of a single commodity-driven economy. Plus, you've got massive corruption led by CIA interference. I mean, U.S. doing what it does best, right? Meddling in other people's affairs and sanctions, you name it. And so really, at the end of the day, it's really hard to be a single export, uh, you know, kind of, you know, environment, economy and be competing with the Saudis 
who have the ability to fluctuate that in a heartbeat and dramatic. So they didn't have sovereignty. They're also, their currency was pegged to the U.S. dollar of all things. So the U.S. could could totally screw with them. They gave up their sovereignty on the currency by pegging it to a, another currency. And because they were single um, export uh, economy, they were able to be screwed with from external constraints as well. So that's what brought on their See, none of this is about printing money, though, you see, but the common language, especially by libertarians and others that don't really get economics, is that, <laughs> you, know, you know, this is this is their problem. This is this is their praxeology, at, you know, their Austrian minded thinking they're putting the religion first instead of just looking at the facts. Like, I don't have a dog in that fight. I used to be a Ron Paul guy years ago. So I, I, I get the impulse. Um, I get the Ayn Randian impulse. Trust me. I mean, I've read them all. But when the facts give you different information, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to change with facts as we as we learn more things to stay stuck in an environment that's not real, like a false paradigm makes no sense to stay there. So, that you know, anyway, I hope that answers the inflation question. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting um, sort of take on things. I hadn't heard all of those inflation, hyperinflation stories being described as based being based around food sovereignty and foreign imports that's um and foreign debt too foreign debt as well yeah in the, in the case of germany especially that's really interesting um because the way i'd understood it at least was that so you'd say you'd have uh like the theory at least i'd heard or i understood was that you had a certain amount of money in the system and that sort of denominated through the market the price of things um, based on how much there was, supply, demand, just I, this is a very basic, like vague understanding of it. So when you pump more money into it, whether it's at the bottom or the top in our system at the minute as it exists, the money will tend to flow straight to the top. So even if it's, even if it's spent at the bottom, it accumulates at the top of our system. And say that we are pumping like what is it like 30% of all dollars or something even more than that has been, have been printed in the last year. So if you increase the amount of like tokens for exchanging for things in the system and it all accumulates at the top after, after six, eight, 12 months, like it has, we've seen a huge, huge, um, upward transfer of wealth and the, the, the amount that's at the bottom in the hands of the normal people is worth less, but there is there is like that that's that's the way i'd understood it so so what if i what am i missing here yeah so ultimately there's you know warren mosler would disagree with me in the way i'm framing this but i hear others that say it this way and it's sort of become the way i've taken this this it, it makes sense to me right so you have stock and you have flows so stock is just money i can save it under my pillow. I can put it under the mattress. I can put it in the backyard in a box. I can put it in a bank account. I can do any number of things. It's still a demand leakage. It's, it's just doing nothing over here, right? That doesn't create inflation. What creates inflation is spending, right? When I, you and I spending, we are going, you and I both want to get a heart transplant tomorrow morning. Okay. We're back to the PlayStation story again. So now all of a sudden beforehand, you didn't have enough money to get a heart transplant. Now all of a sudden you wake up today and you've got money in your hand and you're like, I get to live another 10 years. Okay, I'm going to get a heart transplant. And we go there and they're like, well, we've got one heart. And so now all of a sudden you start bouncing up. 
So you got to get away from thinking about quantity of money. Money growth does not cause inflation. And, and I know a lot of crypto folks really ran to the, you know, out there, it, which is interesting because, you know, if, if I'm not mistaken by that very notion, didn't Bitcoin just suffer a 40% hyperinflation? So, you know, <laughs> you know, you know Dogecoin ooh, to the to the moon, the wrong direction. Oh, you mean the moon on my backside, right? Not the moon up there. Anyway, um, but well, the moon's these, orbit changes, man. So you, if you're if you're if you're aiming up at first, then it's going wrong, and you've got to like follow it. Well played, well played, man. Well played. Um, but but I really think it's important. This took a lot of time for me to get. Okay, because gold standard logic is is still in play. It's in all the textbooks. Everything you read. If I, I have an MBA, I got classically trained in economics. I learned micro. I learned macro. And I almost had to flush my brain once I started learning how it actually worked, right? So we used to tell our children, you're going to get a lump of coal in your stocking if you're not good. Santa's going to know you were a bad little boy and you're getting a lump of coal this year, right? <gasps> I better be a good boy. I want to get you know, the, the little pop gun or I want to get the train or whatever the heck else I asked for from the Sears catalog yesterday, you know, way back in the day. Well, <laughs> We made up a lot of these kind of rules, okay, to prevent us from, quote, unquote, being irresponsible and so forth. So a lot of things that we take as, oh, my God, that's that's like God breathed. It's it's like in, 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 intractable. It's it's the real story, right? Wrong. It was put there like like in the United States, we have this ridiculous thing called the debt ceiling. Okay. Mm. Well, the oh, debt ceiling, yeah. what, what does that even mean? Right. And they go they go up there with their they're thespians and you know portraying all this grand oh it's immoral we can't raise the debt ceiling we're gonna have to take out a credit card from the people's republic of china that's immoral how can we do this and all this grandstanding it's both democrats and republicans pulling this moronic stuff when in reality all the debt ceiling is, is some arbitrary limit they set at the beginning of the year which may or may not correspond with the real economic conditions of the day so what the heck would you do that for? It's like putting a gun to your head and pulling the trigger. It's stupid. It's a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the junk. It's ridiculous. So in my opinion, if, if you look at many of the fiscal rules that are in place, I consider much of them being putting a you know, piece of coal in your stocking for Christmas for being a bad boy. It's a myth. It's a legend. And it's, it's there to protect us from the boogeyman that doesn't exist. And so <laughs> this is largely what we're dealing with. We're, we're trying to deprogram a world full of people that have literally bought hook, line and sinker that they really will get a piece of coal from St. Nick, you know, if, if they, if they do something wrong. So that's, that's the fun story, but the reality is it's, it's sadly killing people. I mean, this is, this mindset is austerity in its worst form. They use this as a shield to say, well, we have to be fiscally prudent. We have we have to make good choices. And reality is, is that, you know, it isn't that neat. Neoliberalism has caused a whole series of major calamities, both in the economy and the climate and people's lives, regular people's lives. And the the fake belief, the false notion that a currency issuing government is like your household budget has done more damage to to society as a whole than probably anything else in the world. 
Um, you think about what Europe, uh, you know, what the EU did and, you know, the UK pulling out with the Brexit thing. On one hand, the neolibs categorized that as bigots not wanting to be part of the, the world. On the mm-hmm. other hand, though, an MMT informed position might be, hey, the UK did not want to give up its sovereignty of issuing its own currency. So it didn't adopt the euro, wanted to keep the pound sterling. And on top of that, it didn't want to give up the ability to create its own uh, economy, so to speak, and have control of its borders. Now, I'm I'm much more of an open borders guy than that. But when you understand the currency issuing nation can pay for things, it doesn't harm anything to allow immigrants to come in the country because the currency issuing nation can create jobs for all. And mm-hmm. so there's a whole bunch of downstream, well, if that, if then statements, you know, that, that make your head explode. And that comes back to the beginning where you asked me, how did you become a, you know, a, a lefty as opposed to a righty? And so it's, it's those kind of if then statements that kind of get you there after years of, focusing on those if-then statements. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's that's also important to note there is that like open borders aren't incompatible with the desire for a nation state to be sort of defined in, in ter- do, do you know what I mean? Like you, you can have a really open immigration policy, but still be like, this is where our land stops. This is where our laws stop. This is where our economic stop or economics stop. Um, yeah, I, so, so, I which is, yeah, I, I, I've never understood why the two are so married. Um, it, it's, yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's an odd one. Um, it but sure is. yeah, like you, you're, you're really talking to a lot of things that I, I kind of, that really speak to me. Um, I, uh, you're clearly, I think a fan of, um, some of Naomi Klein's writing about, uh, neoliberalism and the shock doctrine, uh, no logo and, um, all of her just, stunning pieces of work i mean like if you're listening naomi please come on this show um, <laughs> it's like that's the dream list i have i have <laughs> she's awesome she is um but she 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 and you here are describing essentially that the the establishment of the us and and of britain in 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 a way have been sort of subsumed by this like neoliberal ideology as to like this is how the economy works and this is what we're going to tell you how it works and um, while the rich all get richer. So what do we do about that in your mind? Well, I think from my perspective, okay, we need to educate people, right? We we, we have to do a, I, I hate the concept. It's almost gotten so, you know, passe, this grassroots movement, right? But we need to each one teach one. We need to be telling each other, hey, listen, this is the result of this. You know, our parents didn't do it for us. They handed us this really bad scenario, this mass privatization, this this weird belief that government is feckless and that private sector is all knowing and that markets rule the day and that, you know, only good work is profitable work and not thinking about socially inclusive work and thinking about how do we make life better for each other? How, what What kind of what kind of world do we want, right? They've made it a, there is no alternative kind of thing. This is it. There is no more. We go to war. We we rape and pillage the land. We steal resources, extract resources from countries that we've kept our thumb on to prevent them from ever going into the 21st century. And, and so much just violence 
inherent in the way that we uh, create our world based on the neoliberal paradigm. There's so many contradictions. And, you know, I don't want to get into dialectical materialism or anything like that. I'm not an expert in that field. But you can clearly see that if you're staring at a telephone pole, the sun's on one side of it, you're looking at it on the other side, well, you're going to see a shadowy pole. But if you're on the other side of the thing looking at the telephone pole, it's going to be sunlight on it. And so I think that we have to teach people how to see the other side of the pole so that they understand that there is the history is taught by the victors. And unfortunately, the victors have been Machiavellian, just warmongering uh, profiteers that have been extracting real wealth from nations and consuming it for themselves. And I think that once we are able to prevail upon even right-wingers, when, like when I talk to right-wingers and I explain, listen, your federal taxes don't fund spending. So me and you, we're simpatico. I'm willing to cut taxes for a Jane and Joe six-pack. Let's reduce taxes on the regular people. Let's soak the hell out of those SOBs up there that are extracting and they have an oversized carbon footprint and they have an oversized ability to impact our society. We need to take money away from being speech. I mean, I have a list, laundry list, but I think you can speak to each individual group based on the things that matter to them. I mean, like we talk about sovereignty here and issuing currency. Well, think about how often minorities have been failed by sovereigns. So it's hard to tell them, hey, it's a sovereign right to spend this money. They're like, well, it never made it down here to Harlem. It never made it to Compton. What in the world are we going to sit there and put our hope and dreams into that? And so that's what creates your Kanye's. And that's what creates these other people on the right, if you will, that, that have basically gotten so cynical that they don't think that there's anything more possible. They buy into it. They basically take a knee to predatory capital. And, and ultimately, they give up the ghost and they just say, hey, we, we've lost, so let's just go along to get along and let's just keep going at it. In reality, when you think about what a lot of right-wingers think, especially Christian right-wingers in the United States and so forth, many of them are into fairness. They're, they, they believe in following the rules. They believe in uh, hard work. They got the Puritan work ethic. There's things that matter to them. Maybe that doesn't, in their mind, maybe that judges everybody that doesn't fit these things. And so in their sense, right is right, wrong is wrong. You did wrong, you should pay. And, and it's kind of a black and white thinking. But there is a way there that everybody kind of understands fairness. Everybody kind of wants to get rid of corruption. Everybody kind of wants to have a belief in a higher power, whether that be, you know, just belief in the world or whether that be belief in a higher being or God or Jesus or Muhammad or whoever, whatever it is, people want to believe in something greater than themselves. And so you can certainly appreciate some of the things that they believe, even if you don't share those beliefs. And so I think communicating on their terms, understanding where they're coming from. Um, I was just in a great debate the other night with a, a guy who is a Andrew Yang supporter, a UBI guy. And I'm a job guarantee guy. I do not believe in a universal basic income. And it's not because of some moral thing. It's because I believe that what you're doing is subsidizing poor wages. You're uberizing the economy and you're devaluing labor. And I think labor is one of the few areas where we can organize globally and be able to have an impact to change society. So for me, a job guarantee allows for 
you know, communities to work together to reinvigorate democracy at the local level and to build that grassroots I was talking about. And because we don't have a union hall anymore, that we aren't in the Industrial Revolution, Eugene V. Debs, God bless you, but it doesn't exist anymore, right? So a lot of the, the, uh, the framing that the Bolsheviks had and others had, and you know, you see different arcs of revolution throughout. Those don't exist anymore. Not in the way that they did then. We're in an electronic world, and that electronic world is on private platforms and private platforms that have private rules. And you see Facebook stopping communication. You see Twitter blocking communication. You see all these different platforms stifling our ability to organize, right, wrong, or indifferent. And so it's one of the most important things is to understand what has changed in terms of unions into a modern union and how do we unite to, to, to make things happen. So, you know, this is a long way of saying that I think that people need to find a way to organize. And I think the federal job guarantee, um, which is one, is a great way. But the point of bringing that up was this Andrew Yang guy, he, he genuinely – believed that just giving poor people money was the answer to all the problems. And it will make a poor person's day to have money. Hey, thanks, man. That's great. But it doesn't change anything. It's status quo. It keeps the system as is. And Milton Friedman had a great line. He's like, the only thing wrong with capitalism is we need more capitalism, right? And so this mindset of, of the monetarist is still very much at play with the Yang gang and the UBI crew. They've taken a need to neoliberalism. They said, it's inevitable. We can't do anything. The robots are coming. We're all going to die. Let's give a UBI and be done with it. And, and I'm here to say that, no, we can fight back. We can redefine what work is and we can start bringing about care work. We can create a caring economy. After all, we're in the midst of a climate crisis. We're going to need people to check on old people to see if they're okay. We're going to need people to do things in the local community that have long since been forgotten. Things have organized friendly, loving things in the community, reviving the soul of your community. It's been lost. We've become such consumption units. And the idea of taking back humanity from the brink of just becoming a consumption unit, I mean, like being a battery in the matrix, you know, I I want to I want to be more than a consumption unit. I want to I want to live a life that is full. And so, to me, a job guarantee provides an opportunity to redefine what work even is. You know, we're not competing with the the industrial sector. We're not we're talking about care work. We're talking about whatever your local community wants to do that isn't being done by the man because it's not profitable. So we can create jobs to meet everyone's skill level, including many people that are disabled in this world, but wouldn't be disabled that have the ability to sit in front of a computer and maybe play chess with an elderly person, you know, and talk to them and, and give them companionship. Maybe that's a job guarantee job. I mean, there's so much there that we just don't even think about because our minds have been closed down to the realm of possibilities. But what if I just keep asking, what if, and so this is to me how we how we change that neoliberal paradigm is to start getting people to see how the money works, realize, hey, we can do great things and then start saying, hmm, what if? And I think that we can do some great things if time hasn't run out on the climate crisis. You know what I mean? We are. Physics doesn't negotiate. So we, we are running in a, in a two legged race here where you've got climate saying, hey, I don't care what you guys do over there. I, I'm not partisan. I'm going to wipe you out. And over here, we've got people fighting about whether it's going to be inflationary. It's like, hello, people. 
we got to get our heads out and let's let's make some change. So that's 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 the message. Hmm. I mean, there's a I think it's a Morgan Freeman quote actually. It says, "Just because I disagree with you doesn't mean that I hate you, and we need to relearn that in society." And a couple of things you mentioned there really sort of speak to this this realization or idea that I've had of late is just that there are some really loud, crazy people, and I. But when you get past that, I. I, I don't know, maybe I have this really misguided belief that most people generally want the same thing and that's a, a fairly fair and non-corrupt society in which, yeah, if you work hard, you're going to be, you're going to, you know, be successful. But if you, you know, befall tragedy through health or, you know, whatever happens to you, that you're not just going to wither and die because the system has forgotten you. And, it, it, there's this lovely, beautiful, you know, very boring, people tell me, <laughs> middle ground um, that that has loads of really amazing ideas um, in order to try and take some of the human ingenuity we have and figure out how to make everyone's lives a little better instead of just um, creating more profits for the super rich. Um, <laughs> I guess that's the way I would put it. But why, why are you so like, how, what does a federal jobs guarantee look like? Because some people would definitely accuse you of saying we can have fully automated luxury communism. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so, so imagine this, we have buffer stocks of corn. We have buffer stocks of oil. We have buffer stocks of everything. The one thing we don't have is buffer stocks of labor. Okay. So when you're let go or you're fired from a job, all right, you're unemployed. That's that. Your, your effective wage rate is zero, okay? So we have allowed the, the cost of labor to drop to nothing once we allow people to go there. What we're offering is a transition job, an opportunity to, if you get laid off or you, you're in a bad situation, to walk away from that job or, or if you get fired, get a job here and it would serve the local community. Okay. And it would be at a living wage with benefits. So number one, you know, you're not losing teeth in the middle of a pandemic because you got laid off. You're, you, you're, you, this is about building a buffer stock of employed people versus unemployed people so that they can transition back into, you know, higher paying jobs as they choose, or you can create this for, as a permanent job. If somebody wants to stay in their local community and they found something that makes their, their life good and they can work shorter hours or whatever, why not let them? So again, it is really about redefining because a lot of things that we desperately need as people don't necessarily have a profit at the end of the rainbow. Okay. And so that stuff just doesn't get done because there's no profit. And then Guys like me who run nonprofits, we, we depend on volunteers and donations. I don't get a penny for the work that I do. However, we solicit donations. What if nonprofit work could be seen as a job guarantee job and we could pay those volunteers for the time that they're working and the federal government would backstop it and so forth. So there's opportunity there to, to create a, an employed buffer stock of people as opposed to an unemployed buffer stock. It's an either or it really is Boolean. You're either unemployed or you're employed. And unfortunately, the way society works and the way hiring practices are, 
They make a lot of assumptions for people that are unemployed. They assume you don't have good hygiene. They assume that you don't wake up on time. They assume that you're irresponsible. They assume that you're underskilled. And so a job guarantee would also provide job skill training if you want it. It might even provide college. It may You may even fund students. You may say, going to school is a job. You, you are effectively unable to work. You go to school. This is an investment in our nation. We're going to pay you a living wage to be a college student for whatever reason. So there's opportunities there to frame and structure things in many different ways, ways that you and I have not even thought of. And I've been thinking about this for a long time, and I guarantee you there's a million more ideas that I haven't even thought of yet. And it, and so imagination here plays it, but, you know, the luxury gay communist space, you know, <laughs> communism, you know, that you hear so <laughs> I, I, fully automated luxury communism. That's there you it. go. I, I'd love it. I mean, I'd love it. Give it to me, baby. But but if you think about this, like everybody talks about the march of the robots and they talk about automation and they talk about all this you know, stuff. But reality is, what if instead of letting automation benefit the few, what if we allowed it to benefit all of us, reduce the working week instead of making it 40 hours, let's make it 24 hours you know, or whatever. And, and let's give people more time to be a part of the family. When I was growing up, my father would rush home from work, he'd get home at like four o'clock in the afternoon. He'd take off his patent leather shoes and his tie and put on his baseball coach's Jersey and take me to the ballpark. And we would, you know, we, I, he was my coach. And then he would take me to scouts and he would train me how to, you know, build a tent or, you know, use a knife or, you know, how to, you know, build a fire, um, you know, different things t taught me about herbs and different seeds and things like that. I, I learned an awful lot because my father was able to be a part of my life. But that can't happen anymore. Now people are literally chasing two and three jobs to try and make ends meet because wages haven't kept up. And so to me, this is an opportunity to fundamentally change society, to give us the best and to, to bring about real humane outcomes, real caring outcomes. And, uh, you know, this whole process here also empowers us to turn back some of the emissions to degrowth, uh, you know, to, to, to stop focusing on GDP and start focusing on the quality of life. It's again, you know, some of the stuff is hard to, to fathom if you've been through, you know, 12 years of school learning neoclassical economics, you can't envision a better tomorrow. But for me, I, I, I don't have that. I, I'm, I've been able to see a better, a better outcome and I, and I'm fighting tooth and nail to make it happen. I mean, the, the idea, yeah, the idea essentially that you're putting forward is, is saying is if like, correct me if I'm wrong, is that essentially like we have a whole bunch of stuff in society that is really good for society, but we don't, market as being good for society because we consider like you have to have like the hard physical money or well the the, the money in front of you like it's like show show me the fucking money basically is what is what <laughs> exactly. people want when, when you're doing something but that doesn't mean that like say helping in the community um uh, in nursing homes in um like you know like kids sports teams like local sport teams community events anything like that isn't inherently really really valuable to society and it's valuable to society it's not valuable to capital there's a difference but i mean you can even like if you if you do the math you can like make it out to be 
and it is like valuable to capital because you know uh, um, people benefit um, mentally and physically in their health from you know being around other people, being in nature, not being stressed, and therefore are more productive, less like I, I don't know, less beaten down, probably less sick members of society, and therefore cost the government less and produce more for society. So I like it seems like it, it's it's a case of doing the maths <laughs> essentially. Yeah, I want to say one thing though. I want to correct you on one small thing. It doesn't matter how much it costs the government. The government is a currency issuer. Doesn't matter. Literally, that's the important thing to take away. The government, the federal government for the U.S. can afford absolutely anything that's for sale in U.S. dollars. Anything it can afford. There is no such thing as affordability in that sense. There may be a resource constraint. There may be a real resource constraint. There may not be enough PlayStation 5s. You know, so that that is the only constraint, you know, and I think that inflation serves as a constraint. And the way that we often talk about that is, is if we're not at full employment, the deficit is too damn low. Okay. That's not to say that we should always just keep spending. There are times once you hit full employment and you're at your productive capacity. I mean, look at World War II. World War II is a great case in point. In the United States, every single factory was switched around and turned to the war effort. You had children and you had women manning each of these uh, industrial, uh, you know, all the different production sites throughout the U.S. The men were over there fighting and dying in, in Europe. And so the economy was moving a billion miles an hour. It was like at full, there was no more productive capacity because all hands on deck for the war machine, right? To, 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 to fight the Nazis, you know? And so what happens if somebody wants to buy a car? What happens if people want to go on a trip? What happens if they want luxury items? Now, all of a sudden, the economy is such that there isn't those extra things. So they're, they're, they're in very, very scarce uh, conditions from production standpoint. Okay. So what did they do? They decided because all those kids and women were making money on top of the husbands making money. They went ahead and started selling war bonds. Why did they sell war bonds to take money out of the economy, to delay purchasing power, to make sure that we didn't go into a inflationary environment that they couldn't control. Okay. And so these are some of the techniques that you can do there. But if you think about that, though, and, and this is really important, this is a case study of full employment meets full productive capacity. And now you're at a point now where you can say, hey, we could have some inflationary problems right here, Re legitimate inflationary, because we have no more ability to produce more real goods and services. So that's something to think about. That's well, yeah, this is Steve. This has been, um, quite the educational, uh, yeah, quite the educational hour for me. Um, so yeah, um, just to, to wrap up then, um, the last thing I wanted to ask you was, um, we missed a lot of things. Uh, what is the, what is the biggest challenge that is facing, uh, America today? Like what is, what is the biggest thing that, that needs to be overcome in order to move towards the sort of future that you're envisioning here? Corruption. Um, between the duopoly of the Republicans and the Democrats, uh, not listening to the will of the people, um, 
literally stepping on them to put forward zombie candidates like Biden and Kamala Harris, where Bernie Sanders had the will of the people. These are opportunities right there that that we can't overcome because the system itself is set up to prevent real direct democracy, to prevent people from actually having a real voice. And so what ends up happening is, is that people feel uh, cynical and they check out and they stop paying attention to these important things. And the theater of politics becomes a, a, a comedy show or a horror show, depending on your perspective, instead of a real means of exacting the will of the people. And so between that and, and elite control fraud and the, the oligarchy, which has basically created two Americas, uh, the, the haves and the have nots and the haves, uh, you know, are so few and they have so much power. I think that is really very, very core to us, uh, solving climate crisis, solving healthcare, solving any of the concerns that we as people have, including the existential crisis of the climate. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. We have to get the, we have to stop them being allowed to be corrupt. That's the first step. You can't, you can't, you can't change the system to be more, yeah, aimed at everyone unless we root out the corruption first. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, that's a, that's a great message on which to end. Um, so do you want to uh, tell people where they can find you, um, plugs and whatnot? Sure, sure. Thank you so much. Um, so, uh, you know, our website is realprogressives.org and you can find our podcast, Macro and Cheese and the New Untouchables under our media uh, area. Um, you can also find our YouTube channel, which is growing leaps and bounds. Please subscribe. We need all the help we can get with the algorithms. It's uh, Real Progress in Action. And, um, you know, ultimately we have a lot of other shows. We have a show called the up and up. We have the Luke Parcher show. We have MMT Mondays and we've been doing a lot of webinars, um, where we're teaching people these very important rules. Like we're doing a book club right now. It just finished up last night for the job guarantee with Pavlina Chernova's, uh, Chernova's, uh, uh, book the case for a job guarantee and previously we did uh, the deficit myth by stephanie kelton so by all means please check out macro and cheese and the new untouchables our uh second season for the new untouchables uh began last uh two weeks ago and we have our next episode airing sunday night uh check it out yeah i will put links for all the stuff there in the description below so uh steve yeah thanks it's been uh it's been a pleasure I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. This was great. I, have a, I hope you can have uh, you on our show sometime. Yeah, I'd love to. Actually, that reminds me, everyone that's listening, by the time this goes out, my uh, crowdfunder for my next book will be live. Um, it's about the GameStop saga and how I think it's just the most incredible thing that's ever occurred. Um, so uh, I'll put the link for that in the description below as well. So yeah, I'd love to come on your show and, and chat about that. Sounds good, man. We'll talk soon. Yeah, perfect. But yeah, thanks very much. You got it, man. Have a great day. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. Don't forget our sponsor, ExpressVPN, and my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, can both be found in the links in the description below. And also, please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. It's the best way to help us grow. Until next time, thanks for listening. The animal 
dragged a child around its enclosure. The child had fallen into that enclosure. Officials are now defending their actions. ABC's Alex. A few things I am not. I'm not a cat. I am not an institutional investor, nor am I a hedge fund. There's no panic selling. These people, you know, they may have bought at $4, sat through $400, went back to 40, went to 350, back down to 110, and they have not sold. All they've done is bought more. And there's no answer for that. There's no, they, they, you know, it, it is like art of war mastery by a bunch of idiots who should know better. And they're just, they're just like, I'm not fucking leaving. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. What's been happening on Reddit and in social media and in the marketplace has never been seen before. Uh, the short 70, 60, 80% of a company, let alone 140%, I think a lot of people universally believe something is wrong there. They're powerful, they want to stock hire. It's child's play. Why ever sell into the maw of Wall Street? Yeah, Reddit bets. Why? 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 But everyone's wrong. It's like the big short again. Or more like the big short squeeze this time, right? So here we got the fox guarding the hen house. And one of the hens is complaining. The fox is out to kill us. And the farmer says, I'm sorry, the fox is in charge of the hen house. Whenever there is not billions, but like trillions of dollars involved in something, it I, I argue that nothing is off the table. The way they have absolutely cheated, stolen, robbed everyday people so all our hedge fund billionaire friends can get out and not get killed is one of the most remarkable, illegal, shocking robberies in the history in plain sight. Super Stonk and the other communities that have emerged are a hive mind, the likes of which we have never seen before. It's madness and brilliance, insanity and genius all rolled into one. It's very possible that Citadel will be gone in a few months. And, and not just Citadel, but the entire financial system has the potential to come crashing down. These crooks continue to gamble recklessly with the world economy and this could be the moment that they finally get their justice. You've got maybe 10 million people doing this who now own you know probably more than 100 million shares and eventually you know they might own everything